0: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another Mailbag, where I answer your questions, your concerns, your takes, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other stuff. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, which you can find on the homepage of my channel, and 68 of you left comments. I've read through those comments, and I must say, I am very excited for uh, this episode of the Mailbag I've been doing this every other week, if you haven't noticed. And I think that's just right. Not too, uh, not too rare, but also not too often. Uh, I've, I've, I think I've struck a good balance here. I've been enjoying them every other week. Do a Friday mailbag. It's great. The first question uh, today comes from uh, me, actually. What do you think of the facial hair? Because uh, I've always been one to shave the facial hair. But I've been told not to, and I'm giving that a try. And I know there's not much, but uh, you can you can let me know what you think about that. I know that's a challenging way to start this for those listening on, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite pod, podcast platform. But uh, who knows? Maybe you can hear it. Maybe it's coming through in some way. All right. Without further ado, let's get started. Or maybe I already have gotten started. That was the first question. Uh, one thing I did is I asked uh, people to recomment the comments I didn't get to, but I liked on the last edition of the mailbag. So let's start with those. First one comes from Gold Wolf. The French Open is being stupid. They plan to have fifty to sixty percent fan capacity with no mandate for masks. Why would players prefer to play the French with such subpar standards compared to the super strict player-safe U.S. Open protocols? The first thing I want to qualify is I haven't looked into the French Open uh, safety protocols at all. Uh, but fifty to sixty fan capacity, no mandate for masks—that sounds like uh, that sounds a little bit laissez-faire, no doubt. But as for the the heart of the question why do players prefer to play the French? I think there's two things. the first thing is what I covered on last week's Monday match analysis they don't want to quarantine. that's gonna be that's gonna be a, a major deal breaker for a lot of players and understandably so quarantining I, I haven't personally had to do it to uh you know to a very uh extreme sense you know I did I, I did you know hunker down. So to speak, but I didn't quite quarantine at any point during this. But it's it's intimidating. It's it's not what it's not something that anyone should uh, should really be looking forward to doing. So with uh, with any kind of quarantine requirement, that's going to be the number one thing that that could scare players off. And um, since the French Open is a member of the European Union, my understanding is that you know, in, in terms of traveling through, through Europe, there will be no quarantining requirements. The second part of this though, is the reality of, uh, a generational gap in how concerned people are about contracting COVID-19. Um, it is something that is rooted in science, right? Because, uh, older people are at a much higher risk from, uh, suffering more uh you know severe consequences from contracting the virus when compared with young people but you you do have to remember that tennis players uh usually fall between the ages of 35 and 20 years of age and that demographic is not so much concerned with getting coronavirus uh more so concerned with perhaps uh the comfort level that they have in playing a grand slam and safety measures, social distancing measures and and all that they're not comfortable. You got to you got to deal with it. You got to suck it up. You got to toughen up. But they are not comfortable. And if if someone doesn't feel awfully motivated to play the US Open because they can't bring their family, all right, you know, you got to you got to accept that. That's you got to just accept that. But certainly I think players are prioritizing uh, Generally speaking, by the way, and I know that this is untrue for some players, and I know that some players are really concerned about getting the virus. For sure, no doubt. Um, I think a lot of players are are more concerned about their comfort. And we've seen that. We've seen that in in uh, player behavior. No, I think we have. Now, uh, just to be clear, none of that excuses. I'm not trying to make any kind of excuse or uh, normalize reckless behavior because uh, you can you can contract the virus without without being irresponsible. And it you know that that stigma is not is not good. Because you can you can get it going to the grocery store or the, or the gas station and, and it shouldn't be stigmatized like getting coronavirus shouldn't be seen as like, oh, you were irresponsible. How dare you? However, you know, going around and being unconcerned with uh, the potential of spreading the virus is a uh, is a danger to public health. And that I'm not um, by any means excusing that. OK, another one that was commented last week comes from Ajay, I believe it would be pronounced. Uh, outside of Rafa slash Novak, if they don't go to the U.S. Open, I have either team Pass, Medvedev to win it. How do you match these three up versus each other, taking into account they will be at Flushing Meadows, their styles, as well as past matches in their head-to-heads? And who would you see coming through amongst them? Will Rublev and Sinner be dark horses in your opinion? Uh, sorry if there are too many questions. Love your show. Thank you. So I agree with that trio. Let me say that first. I agree that Team Tsitsipas Medvedev, I've been kind of consistent in, in this outside of the big three. Right now it's a big two. They are the ones to watch. I agree. When it comes to their uh, how well the US Open suits them, I'll just go one by one. I think I think Team has has shown that slow hardcourt can be a really great surface for them. He's had great results at, at Indian Wells. He's the the, champ, the defending champion there. Um, and I think he's also shown to be able to play really well at the U.S. Open. Last year, unfortunately, he was ill and couldn't showcase his abilities on the Queen's hard courts. But uh, the year before, he pushed Rafa Nadal to five sets. So that counts for something. I think it's a really good surface uh, for team Tsitsipas is still a player where uh, his best surfaces are still somewhat unclear. Um, But I will say that I think Stefanos can benefit from the fact that there are no crowds. And I think as the tournament nears, we can get into which players might um, be negatively affected from the fact that there won't be a crowd and which players may be positively affected. I think Tsitsipas is one player who really could benefit from it um, because... I think it could relax him a little bit. I think he's he's someone who is prone to get a little bit too tense, put a little bit too much pressure on himself. The way he put it at the beginning of the year, and I was kind of vindicated when Pass said this because I was saying that he he kind of needs to calm down a little bit on the court. And at the beginning of this season, he said that he he's going to try to take it a little bit less seriously. And again, it, it's really good that he cares. And it's way harder to get a player who cares and put them in the right mindset than to get a player who doesn't care to care. So don't get me wrong there. But I do think that the absence of a crowd might calm down Stefano Tsitsipas. And uh, I, I think it could be a good good thing for him. That's purely speculative, but that's my uh, read on it. As for Daniil Medvedev, I really do like him on quicker surfaces. And I, I do have the feeling that when uh, Daniil Medvedev fully breaks through at a slam, and I know he's the 2019 U.S. Open finalist, he was playing unreal tennis. It didn't matter what surface you put him on. He was he was on an incredible, incredible run. So don't get me wrong. I, I fully understand that. I still think, I still like Medvedev's game better, um, probably in Australia and at Wimbledon. I I think that his biggest... Uh, I think he benefits from a lower bouncing court and a quicker court where where he can have a little bit more of a punch off the ground. I don't think that he is someone who is uh, gonna hit through slow courts very well. So, you know, Medvedev scratched and clawed his way through the U.S. Open last year with just unbelievable heart. But he was on he was on such a, a magical run where everything was going right from you know hitting first serves on the second and it you know going in and blah 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 i don't think i need to defend it any further as for how they match up for each other uh let's do that uh team against tt pass i think with uh with team's improved uh serving i think he is uh he could readily be able to take advantage of tt pass's Uh, Return, which is at at this point in time possibly his weakest shot, Um, and uh, I also think team is does a tremendous job of uh, attacking the righty backhand. Uh, Team against Medvedev, I think team is similar to Nadal, and we've seen Rafael Nadal is the the player who's given Daniil Medvedev the biggest problems out of the big three. Dominic Team is a player who is a really really good low ball hitter. Largely in part to, um, thanks to how much RPM he generates and he's really, really good at generating his own pace. That's largely thanks to, um, to the racket speed that Dominic team brings to the court. So I think team matches up pretty well against both of them. One thing that Medvedev might be going, might, uh, have against team is, uh, toughness and shot tolerance. So in best of five, Medvedev might be someone who who can test Dominic Team in that area, and uh, I I do think that that's the next step. I want to see Team dig deep and come through a match that turns into you know a war, uh, or come out of a match that turns into a war of attrition and a battle of wills. I just haven't seen that from Team yet. It'll come. I think it'll happen, but I do think that's the next step because his game has become so well rounded. And, and something that's so difficult to deal with. Tsitsipas against uh, Medvedev. I think Medvedev has had a mental edge, a substantial mental edge um, against Stefanos Tsitsipas ever since they've formed like a quasi rivalry. I, I don't think Stefanos has played well against the Russian at all. Um, and I think that's just because he's he's wanted to beat him too bad because I don't think they like each other. Um, am I, am I crazy? Am I missing one? I did both the teams. I did Tsitsipas Medvedev. I think, I think we're good. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. (laughs) Um, and then there are a couple other questions in here. Rublev, Sinner, Dark Horses. Sure, sure. Sinner's not, Sinner just needs to develop physically. Uh, And, uh, that's just, that's clear as day. He's not, he's not a big boy yet right he's not up there i i'm pretty sure if you ran a combine w- with the top 20 you know sinner's just sinner's just not the athlete that that he needs to be yet but that's that just comes from developing his body and and that is not alarming by any stretch of the imagination uh he will he'll get there and rublev yeah i mean rublev is at a top 10 level right now um probably close to a top five level. So he's, I don't even know if you can call him a dark horse anymore, because I think everyone has, everyone now notices how good Andre Rublev is. All right. Sip of coffee. What else do we have? Okay. Another one that was asked last week. uh, How would you rate the slams in order of prestige and why? I'm from Australia and love the Australian Open, but would put it last. For me, it would go Wimbledon, French Open, US Open, and Australian Open. That's the order I think most tennis people would, would put it in, but I actually think that that is has kind of changed because the French Open and um, disclaimer, let me put out a disclaimer. I haven't been to Australia, so I've, I've been to the other three. I haven't been to, to, to the Aussie Open yet. The French Open, from from what I've seen, certainly compared to the U.S. Open and Wimbledon, and from what I've heard, they've also fallen behind the Australian Open when it comes to uh, facilities and amenities. The French Open, the, the grounds are kind of cramped, and it just doesn't quite have the same state-of-the-art feel that the other three have. So I don't know if I would put... Um, I don't know if I would put the French Open second. I think certainly Wimbledon is first. Sorry about that. And uh, you can just feel the history. You just feel it. And not to mention the tournament is meticulously run, and there's so much beauty attached to it. Wimbledon is first. But then, for me, it's New York, and maybe I'm biased. I mean, that's my that's my home major. If you ask me, what major would would you want to win? Gil Gross, I would say the U.S. Open. That's just the major I grew up with and going to, and that's that's just how it is. Um, but yeah, I think New York second. Then it's the French, and then you know Australia. It's just catching up. 80s, and then, you know, even in the 90s, a lot of players were skipping it. But they just made it such a great... I think they just made the experience so good that it became irresistible. And now, which I'm really happy about, now everyone um, is pretty much... Not pretty much. Everyone is playing all four, which is great. Okay. I think one more from last week. This is from... Uh, Swaggart, um how would you rate the slams in terms of prestige? Oh, I just I just uh, answered that. Yeah, he also thinks uh, Wimbledon, Roland Garros, U.S. Open, Australian Open in that order. Um, outside of Rafa Novak, if they don't go to the U.S. Open. Oh, I answered that, too. Oh, oh, I, I see what he was doing. He was compiling all the questions that I wanted to answer from last week. Wow. OK, I get it. Thank you. All right. That is it for last week. So now I can just go to the most liked comments. Uh, this one comes from Silver Wolf. Will Novak, will Novak and Rafa play U.S. Open? How is everything going over there with the state of Black Lives Matter and the coronavirus? Are you doing okay? Uh, how do you feel the American landscape will shift in the next few years if the current state of things remain the same? first uh novak novak and rafa um in the us open i don't i don't think nadal is going to play i think a lot of that has to do with the concern over the tight schedule and wanting to be 100% for the french open and preferring to play on clay and preserving his body i think these are the things at play um i don't think it's has anything to do really with I mean, everything has to do with COVID right now, but I don't think it it has to do with, you know, how uncomfortable he feels about the virus or the safety protocols. And certainly it has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. Um, But I don't think Rafa is going to play the U.S. Open. And Novak said, I'm going to play unless I have to quarantine. Again, I think so many players are going to be in that boat that they want to play, but they're not going to do it if they have to quarantine upon um, arrival in Europe. How is everything going over there? Um, that is just... That's a super loaded question. So I'm going to skip that one because I can't summarize how everything is going in the United States. Uh, we, we'd have to do a... I don't know. That would be maybe a 13-hour show. Um, but am I doing okay? Yeah, I'm, I am. You know, so... To be completely... Honest, this summer I I planned to. I had two plans. One, my I was thinking that maybe I would uh, be in LA doing some stuff with with Tennis Channel this summer. That was made impossible because of the coronavirus. Um, so that was disappointing. And if I wasn't doing that, I planned to really ramp things up on YouTube just for the summer, so I could uh, cover really the heart of the tennis season. I was gonna, you know. I was going to be able to stop some of the other things that I'm doing, and I was going to be able to really hone in on on doing this show, which I was also really looking forward to. So that was disappointing, but uh, ultimately, ultimately, I'm good. Um, I am. I have not lost a loved one. Uh, I have not lost a job, um, and you know, I'm not battling you know depression or, or any mental health issues, which I know has been a a really big problem with, with everything that's going on. So I'm, I'm doing well and thanks for asking. Um, and then the last question here is how do you feel the American landscape will shift in the next few years if the current state of things remain the same? Um, so I will always toe the line when it comes to polarizing worldly issues that don't have to do with tennis. You know, obviously whenever it comes to these kind of topics, you're going to get both your news, information, and opinions from wherever you think is the best place to get those things from. And by the way, it's very important to understand which is which, but that is uh, neither here nor there. You're going to get those things from wherever you think is best. You're sure as hell not coming to Gil Gross for that. I know that. So, um, you know, I always, I always keep that at the, uh, at the forefront whenever I'm dealing with this, with this kind of thing. Um, so I'll keep this short and simple. I think that there has been social progress. Um, and I think that there's actually a lot to be kind of happy with, um, in terms of the change. I think, I think there's, there's real change happening. That's the, how is the American landscape shifting? All I can say is I, I do think it's shifting and, uh, conversations are being had that need to be had that weren't being had before um and i'll just give you a i think you know one example is the fact that corporations are willing to to say black lives matter you know and just that again five years ago that phrase was a phrase that you know corporations were, were staying away from and really not going anywhere near and Um, I, that is just one example. I do think that the goalposts have shifted here and I do think social progress is happening. Um, I had one more thing to say. Oh, and I think that a lot of people have learned a lot, including myself. I think this has been a time where, um, a lot of people have learned about, or have at least made an attempt to understand the black experience in America. What is it like to be black in America? And. Just uh, Now, first of all, you can't really understand that unless you are black in America. But uh, making the effort to try and understand what that experience is um, has been something that probably a lot of people haven't done until recently. And I think that's a good thing. Okay. Moving on. All right. Before two thousand and one, there were only sixteen seeds at majors compared to thirty-two now. Do you think we should go back to that system since it creates more popcorn matchups early on in tournaments? You know, I meant to look into why the change was made, and I'm sure top players were happy. Um, okay. Let me let me give you both sides, both sides of the argument. And this is probably why the change was made, but I I, I haven't verified this. I think the the good part is that when the best players are there at the end, it, it makes for the best results. Now, sometimes a Cinderella is fun, but if you look at—and this is a common misconception—if you look at the highest-rated—this is true for all sports—the highest-rated sports, the highest rated sports in, in terms of TV ratings, it's, the, it's generally the people that we're supposed to be bored of um, when the New England Patriots are in the Super Bowl, it tends to rate higher. When LeBron James is in the NBA Finals, it rates higher. Is he there most years? Do people say that we're bored of LeBron James? Yeah, we do. Do some people say that they're bored of the big three? Yes, they do. It's the same thing. When the big three play each other in the final, it's rating better. It just is. And the product's better. Which is it's more important to to me? You know, I'm not a television executive. I don't I don't care how the thing rates. But uh, you know, when when we have situations like in 2017, where um, you know, Kevin Anderson is making two finals, you're not getting you're not getting great finals there. You're just not Nadal um, at the U.S. Open, Djokovic at Wimbledon. You're not getting good finals. So, um, by having by having 32 seeds, theoretically, it protects the better players, and you're going to have better round of 16s, and you're going to have better quarterfinals. I get all that, but I don't really like it. I'd rather it be 16. Um, I am I am someone who thinks that if you're if you're good enough to win the tournament, your draw shouldn't really matter that much, or even if it does matter, oh well, that's how this works. Luck of the draw. Uh, I don't. I I don't need I don't need draws to be fair, um, but ultimately my number one. This is where I'll end it because this is how I feel. I really don't like the fact that a lot of the time the premier match on center court, or if you have a ticket to center court at Wimbledon or Arthur Ashe or Philippe Chatrier or Rod Lever. In the first week of a major, you're seeing a lot of bad matches. By bad, I mean not close. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, nothing is uh, more pronounced than the U.S. Open night session. Generally in New York, the, the organizers put the best two matches of the day, one women's match, one men's match, as the night session at Arthur Ashe. And there are too many times, first week, they're not compelling matches. And if, if that wasn't the case, that would be a lot better. You know, I mean, just if we had, you know, second round, let's say second round, um, we have a guy like FAA who, if there were 16 seeds, wouldn't be seeded. If we had FAA play Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer in the second round of a major, and you put that as the night session at Arthur Ashe, I just think you'd get a way better product. And that uh, that would be enjoyable for me. So I actually would rather it be 16 seeds. Um. Okay, here's a comment with six likes. Uh, is it easier or harder for Novak to win the U.S. Open without Roger and Rafa? Sounds like a silly question, but checking the last Novak's results versus Roger and Rafa and the fact that the next-gen guys will only have to beat one Big 3 member uh, make me hesitate. At the end of the day, I think... When it comes to Novak, Dominic Team has belief. Daniil Medvedev probably has some belief based on uh, you know, every time they meet, it's it's a close match. But no, I, I think it's it's harder for Novak to win the US Open without Roger and Rafa because what you get in Roger and Rafa are two guys who at least know when they take the court that they can win. At least know what it feels like to beat Djokovic at a slam. None of these well, team knows what it feels like. But uh, a lot of these players, these next-gen players, they don't know what that feels like. So that's where you get... It's not really about what's harder for Novak, but what are the chances that someone shrinks under the spotlight or just, you know, doesn't have enough belief to close out Djokovic even though they they can play good enough tennis and Novak's on an off day, right? Belief matters a lot, and... It's definitely better for Djokovic that there are less guys in the field who know what it's like to beat him and certainly believe that they can. How long have I been talking? 28 minutes. This might be a long one. I'm I'm not in a rush this time. Last week uh, or two weeks ago, I, I had a bit of a time crunch. Who among active players is the best according to you when it comes to executing drop shots effectively? That, uh, that question comes from Garish. Um, so I think, let me give it some, some categories, okay? Let me give it some categories. I think Rafa Nadal probably has the best drop volley in men's tennis. I think Novak Djokovic probably has the best backhand drop shot down the line in all of tennis it is so that specific drop shot is so darn automatic for novak it's it's on un, it's unbelievable but roger federer is the guy who can hit drop shots from seemingly any position in any situation that's kind of the difference you never really know when it's going to come you don't know you know forehand backhand there's a million different Positions on the court and uh, different kind of drop shots that Federer can hit. So I would consider overall Federer to be the best drop shotter on tour. Some other guys who I think deserve shout outs, um, certainly Benoit Pair, especially on the back end. I would say Fabio Fanini deserves uh, a shout out for his drop shotting. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Andy Murray, who's the most common drop shotter of all of them. And by the way, it's probably unfair not to not to maybe lead with Murray, um, because okay, and, and you know Murray Murray goes to it more often because he has to, especially on clay on a slower surface where he doesn't feel as comfortable putting opponents away off the ground. Um, he can he can take away depth and use the drop shot as a means to end the point because it's a little bit harder for him to do it with the forehand. So Andy Murray is also right up there in that elite tier. Oh, Nick Kyrgios. That's the last guy I want to mention. Kyrios certainly deserves to be there as well. That's a fun question. Amine. It might not be Amine. Amine, I'm a fan of his music though. This is not that Amine. Um, Hey Gil, I'm following you from Algeria. And apologies, just let me blanket apologize if I mispronounce your name on one of these. Uh, How do you explain the fact that big countries like Japan and Germany don't have Grand Slam events or uh, at least ATP Masters 1000? uh, They are economically stronger than France, for example. And do you think that a change of location of one of the four slams would be possible in the near future? Great job. Carry on. Um, Appreciate that. These... These tournaments are so old that you know when you look at the modern economy and the world structure, it just it didn't resemble uh, what it is today. Um, and you would have to ask like a, a true historian why these things shaped up this way. The country that I always think about is is India, though, and and I know that. A lot of, I see the analytics. I also see the comments. I know that, that there's a lot of people from India who who follow the channel. Um, and I see on Twitter a, a lot of tennis fans from India. And um, it, it does surprise me that they don't have a bigger tennis tournament. I know that they have, I, I believe it's pronounced Pune. Um, but I it, it, it surprised me that they don't have anything more. Um, Germany you know, Halle and Stuttgart um, and Hamburg. So they have a lot of tournaments, but, you know, again, I, I think a lot of these tournaments were, were organized a long time ago, and then Japan has Tokyo, it's 250. It's just not, it's not how it works. It's not like the biggest countries have the biggest tennis tournaments, and I don't think it really has anything to do with economic strength. It has to do with uh, tennis tradition probably and who was running things at the time which is uh, how a lot of things work are you confident the US open will go ahead or does Washington's cancellation raise more doubts I would say it's pretty clear and smart for an adult to skip the US open but what about Jokovic um, I, I already answered that so I'll uh, I'll talk about the first one right now how am I feeling about the US open I'm nervous about the field and I'm not clear on what their point of no return is. At what point um, would the U.S. Open decide that it's not worth having a tournament? If I were to guess, that point is pretty pretty far in terms of a decimated field. I don't think the U.S. Open is going to be very quick to, to say, oh, well, the field isn't great, so we're just going to cancel. I don't think that's happening. There are bigger, much bigger economic incentives at play here. I would be shocked if a slightly or moderately reduced field would be enough for the U.S. Open to cancel. Also, as I covered on last week's Monday Match Analysis, um, the U.S. Open is thankfully not in California or Texas or Florida. You know, all uh, U.S. states that are having trouble controlling the virus at this time. New York, New York City as well. Right now, um, the numbers uh the, or the curve is flat which is uh bodes very well it means that there there won't be any kind of seemingly again things can change at the moment um it wouldn't be likely that anything would change in terms of the government's approval for the tournament to go on so i i do still think the us open is happening um a final decision needs to be made very soon i believe john Wertheim of sports illustrated um Reported that the that the decision will come in the coming in the coming week, I believe, because I think I think they want to know before August for sure. The next question from OCS, why is everyone on Twitter saying you are Ugandan? I think you are the only one. I think this person OCS here, my friend, is the only one saying that I'm Ugandan and someone else probably his friend. Uh, I think it's hilarious I've gotten a good laugh out of this I've seen this in the comments before um, and it's it's very funny. I don't know where it comes from, but you know I'm glad that this is the meme that has found my comment section it's great. who is the highest level on grass highest on clay and highest on hardcore This seems like a pretty almost almost a softball question. You know, this is, I think most people would agree, Federer on grass due to his serve forehand and net play prowess, Nadal on clay due to the incredible topspin he generates off the ground, his movement and his uh, tenacity, shot tolerance, toughness, and all that, and Djokovic on hard court, which, you know, it's kind of the hybrid surface and Djokovic is kind of the hybrid player. Pretty simple. What else do we got? Um, Stefano here left a long comment saying that, um, Djokovic loses against Nadal um, because of the weather. Let's see. So, if shot tolerance and consistency are the keys for great success on clay, then there is no reason why Djokovic loses against Nadal. Nola is second to none regarding shot tolerance and consistency. He has proven already against Rafa at the at the Australian Open and on grass. Here's the thing: if you look closer at their head-to-head on clay, starting from 2011, the score is 8-6 for Nadal. And Nadal built that advantage mainly at the French Open. In the other tournament, Nole has the edge. Other tournaments, Nole has the edge. So again, why Nole loses at the French, Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome are played on clay. So the problem is not clay. My theory, since I can't find a technical reason, is that Nole is really affected from the hot climate in Paris. Every time they meet, it was really, really hot and Nole can't take it. I don't know if the weather's been been that extreme. I would say a couple things here. One, best of five is different from best of three. And if, if you want a, a technical, and this isn't a technical reason, it's a tactical reason, this is what I'd give you. Um, on hard court and grass, Djokovic is doing most of the dictating against uh, Nadal. And he's moving Nadal around. Um, more than Nadal is moving him around. That's the dynamic that has uh, that has persisted on quicker surfaces, uh, due to kind of, in my opinion, the cross court patterns and the serve return battle. But that has not been the case on clay. I think that because Nadal hits a heavier ball than than Djokovic. Um, because he returns a lot better on clay because his forehand is the biggest weapon on the court on clay. Nadal is doing more dictating against Djokovic on the surface. And that's where best of five is going to be a lot different than best of three. And perhaps Djokovic just um, over the course of five sets is, is just less likely to, uh, to be able to sustain his, his highest level. But I also think there's there's something, you know, gladiatorial and intimidating against Nadal at the French Open, and it's real. You know, the, the fact that he hasn't lost there um, or that he didn't lose there until 2015, um, you know, just, it also just has a lot to do with the fact that He's gonna lock in more, and he's gonna peak more at the French. That's just he's he's gonna be more consistent at the French, or if not more consistent, I mean it's it's just a different ballgame. Team has beaten Nadal in the lead up to the French Open every year now, but when they meet best of five, French Open, Nadal is getting the best of things. Hey Gil, your session on Rafa and Nole serve improvement was great. I have three questions for you. One, French Open 2017 final. I thought Stan is one of the three players who can handle Rafa's forehand with his backhand. But I was surprised to see the scoreline. A lot of people might have thought uh, this could be tough for Rafa. Were you surprised uh, with how the match went along and the scoreline? I don't know. I mean, Stan is really pushed back by the Nadal forehand. He's pushed back very, very far. Um, but, you know, I I don't want to comment on that match because I, I haven't seen it since 2017. Next one, 2019 Wimbledon final between Fed and Nole. I was surprised to see Fed's game. I don't think he had shown that kind of level and variety before. Frankly, I expected that it might go like 2014-15 finals where it felt that Fed was surviving. Um, would it be right to say that this was Fed's best individual performance? Uh, I am from India. There you go. Indian fan, see? Um, I wasn't surprised. I thought Federer was playing great tennis, and I thought he was showing match toughness. Again, I I credit it to the fact that he played the clay court season, and not only played the clay court season, but played it really, really well and beat everyone who he was supposed to beat. That is to say, beat everyone outside of Rafa Nadal and Dominic Team. Uh, Who, according to you, are the top five underachievers and overachievers in tennis since the year 2000? Hmm. Underachiever, I mean, if you want to say, like, someone who just didn't try, who's really talented, I mean, the popular answer might be Bernard Tomic, Ernest Golbis. You know, those guys are notorious for uh, not caring very much. And both of them were very, very talented. Um. I, I almost want to think outside of them, though. Like, who's someone who tried and still underachieved? Um, I guess the jury's still out on on a few of them. Um, I guess... I guess there are some players who, who had unbelievable runs and played unbelievable tennis at certain points, and then they just didn't really continue it or sustain it. You know, like... Ver- I would say Verdasco was just never really the guy who was playing the Australian open in 2009. Um, And and that was kind of disappointing. I don't think Sanga got that much better over time. You know, Sanga was, was a good player. You know, he made, he made the finals again in Australia in 2008. I just don't know if he improved. I, I don't think his footwork ever really got to a place where he could compete with the very, very top. So, Maybe those are two names that I could throw out of guys who just didn't really quite make the progression. You have the French players, right? You have the Gaz K, you have the Sangha, you have the Monfils. Um So I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting topic. I would have to delve into it with uh, with a little bit more fervor. Off the top of my head, it's kind of it's kind of a difficult one. When is the next episode of three? Uh, Luis Ayala asks that. Uh, that'll be next week. Next Thursday, I believe, uh, as of now. Uh, Amy is, is moving. She's moving her, her house. That is a large undertaking, and she had to deal with that this week. So we had to, to take a week off, and we'll be back next week. Myself, Joel Drucker, Amy Lundy. If you haven't checked it out, um, go to the homepage of my channel, take a look at recent uploads, and uh, you will see it. Okay, here's a, here's a long comment, but uh, I, do, I do think it's a thoughtful comment, so I will read it. Um, it's from Cedric. I will start out by saying that I watch a lot of live sports and I also play a couple sports. However, I would say that tennis is one of my favorite sports to play, uh, while one of my favorite sports to play is uh, one of my least favorite to watch. And I've often wondered, why is that? Here's my reasoning. It's all about personality. Let me do a golf parallel to further explain my point. I'm a big golf fan, and I follow a YouTube channel called Golf Subpar, which is a podcast that does extended interviews with mostly professional golfers and sometimes other athletes or personalities that have an interest in golf. The questions asked during the podcast are sometimes serious, And sometimes it's just about funny stories of pranks around the locker room or on the golf course. That way you get a pretty complete picture of the personality of the athlete. They got some really high profile golfers like John Rahm, who was at the time of the interview number three in the world. He's now the new number one. These extended interviews made me care a lot more about the players than I knew them Uh, that I know knew of them by name before, but I didn't bother watching because the only metric I could use to determine whether I would follow their round was their golf game. These interviews have brought another metric, their personalities. For instance, just because I know that Charlie Hoffman, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to skip this anecdote. My point being, why is such content impossible to find, or maybe even impossible to produce for tennis? Um, I, and I'm sure many others, would kill just to hear funny locker room stories or more serious stuff from players that we watch all year round. The closest comparison with the golf podcast I found um, were the many Instagram lives between Stan and Benoit Pair. Since they are good friends, they were talking about everything from life, Stan's favorite drink, why Benoit is so weak mentally, he said it himself, all that content gave me a sense of who they really are, and next thing you know, I'm a Benoit Pair fan. This would never have happened before those Instagram lives because I didn't like Pear's attitude on the court. But now that I know him more, I understand why he's frustrated, which makes me perceive his anger in a much more relatable way. I know this is a long, not very polished reflection, but what do you think? Do you think it would be a good idea to have one hour interviews with top players? Do you think people would be more attracted to tennis? And do you think this kind of content is feasible? Why or why not? I think your con- your comment stands best by itself without my input. It's just a valuable comment uh, because I I think this is this is very valid, and there is an access issue in tennis. A bit of an access issue. Uh, players are not very accessible. Not just the top players, but even the lower ranked players. There is usually a lot of red tape to go through if you want a one-on-one interview with the players. I don't see a lot of players doing podcasts on a regular basis. I've made the comparison with Ariel Helwani in mixed martial arts where more or less, you know, and that show is a lot younger than tennis and you know was really a lot less mainstream just a short bit bit ago, but uh there are shows where you pretty much hear from all the athletes after their biggest fights immediately after and immediately before or at least one or the other. It's just not the case in tennis. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic play that play that match at at Wimbledon, you get their post-match press conference, you get them talking with the rights holders. Maybe they, they interview with BBC, they interview with ESPN, they interview with tennis channel, but they're not going on any podcasts. They're not doing one-on-one interviews with, uh, you know, the likes of, of great journalists like Joel Drucker or Steve Flink, you know, they're, they're just general or Christopher Clary or John Wertheim. They're generally not. There's kind of an access issue, you know, John Wertheim's piece for 60 minutes, when he went and uh, did a piece on on Nadal, that is rare. I wish it wasn't. That is rare. You know, Federer has done one-on-ones with GQ about shoes or, or Complex about shoes or, or Fifty Questions with GQ. But that stuff, it, it's so it's so rare, and I wish it was less rare. And I think the best thing is if players at the very least self-promote themselves through social media. I think I get a pretty good idea of who Stefano Tsitsipas is. A weird, quirky, yet passionate and, um, you know, kind of philosophical guy. That's who Stefano Tsitsipas is. Why can I make that assessment of his personality, of his character? Because he, self, he self-promotes. He self-brands. He's on Twitter. He's on Instagram. He has a YouTube channel. Um, these things are good. But it would also be, you know, the media just doesn't get a lot of access. I don't know if that's going to change. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't really see that. I think that there are some great personalities in the sport. Um, but I think at a certain point, someone needs to change the way they get themselves out there my, my plea to the players would be this. It is profitable for you to go on podcasts. It is profitable for you to put yourself out there, be liked, get people to like you talk to people. By the way, I should mention, uh, Novak recently did something with Graham Bensinger. So it's not, it's not completely never. It's not like they they're shut off that the media never gets access, but, In the big picture, there's less access and it's very difficult. Even if it happens, it's difficult. You got to go through a manager. You got to go through agencies. You got to go through tournament PR people. It's difficult. My plea to the players, you will put more money in your pockets if you get your personality out there. Leave it at that. Um, Okay, let's do a little lightning round here. Let's do a lightning round. Why does Nadal always get easy draws at the US Open? Shouldn't they count as eight? I don't I don't I don't like talking about draw luck. It's ridiculous. Um because it, it's not the player's fault that they have an easy draw. It's just not. So do you think Rublev might be able to play lights out? Yes. Um, do you think the bounce will be low enough at the French because of the cold weather that will enable Novak to rush Nadal on his forehand wing? Um, because other than that, I don't think Novak can beat him even on hard courts. Forget about Clay. Um, I don't know how the weather is going to affect Roland Garros. Excluding members of the Big Three. What are some of your favorite matchups to watch? How about potential matchups between next gen plus teams, such as Team versus Titi Pas, which produced a great uh, match at the ATP Finals? Hmm. Favorite matchups. It's a good one. That's a good one. Um, we gotta think about that one. You know. Medvedev and and Vavrinka has been intriguing recently. I, I think that they've played um, interesting matches because um, Daniil beat Stan at the U.S. Open, but then Stan beat Medvedev at the Aussie this year. So that's been interesting. Uh, I just don't want to spend so much time. I you know this is one like I have to think about. Um, oh, team team against del Potro put two of the biggest hitters in the game on the court with each other and then the last one I'll give is Curios and andCT I love the contrast there I mean they are they are opposite personalities and that is just that's really good spectacle to me they played some good tournaments um or some good matches rather in uh, the hardcore season last year. Thoughts on Nishioka? Really talented, but he's got to figure out a way to serve bigger. Um, ATP froze all points, and Djokovic's total weeks um, at number one aren't counting during this time where no tennis is played. I get that logic, but at the same time between two seasons when no tennis is played, it's regularly counted for the overall weeks on number one spot. This is true. The past three months, Novak is the official number one. I do not see any logic why then those weeks are not counted. Your opinion. Regards, Alex. Thank you for the comment. Here's what I say to that. If you are Novak Djokovic, if you are a fan of Novak Djokovic, you should not want these weeks to count because you do not want a record with with an asterisk. You just don't want it. It just opens the door for the chatter and the yeah buts and the what aboutism. You don't want that. You don't. Novak Djokovic will have every chance in the world to break the the weeks at number one record that you know belongs to Roger Federer. He will have all the chance to do that without getting aid by the COVID nineteen pause. And if you're Djokovic. If you support Djokovic, you should not want the record to be broken this way. You should want the record to be broken with tennis being played. And one of the big words that everyone has used to describe this time is unprecedented. And it's like this most, it's like this annoying buzzword that you keep hearing, unprecedented. But like, that's why you can't compare a regular offseason to right now. Because... The offseason, the one month where there's no tennis and that always counts towards weeks at number one, it's precedented every year. It happens. This is unprecedented. I think they're doing the right thing here with the freeze. And I don't think Novak Djokovic would want the record this way. That's all I got. Um, Remember, if you're listening on podcast platforms, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It is a huge help. Um, And I appreciate all the support, all the comments, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.